0: Gresham College presents America's Advents by Professor Alec Rari. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this, the the second in our series of lectures titled Extreme Christianity, um, in which I'm looking at a series of movements within historic Christianity which seemed to their contemporaries to be dangerously extreme or unhinged. The point of this is, well, first of all, to point out that extremism is a slippery category. Not just that it's, it's relative in the sense that everybody thinks that they themselves are sensible and extremism is something that other people do, but also that Christianity in general, and indeed religion or any other totalizing philosophy, is inherently extremist. Barry Goldwater who was the Republican nominee for the American presidency in 1964, who was the last presidential nominee to fall uh, properly outside of the American political mainstream before the new incumbent, was accused of being an extremist. And he famously replied that extremism in the pursuit of liberty was no vice. And that was made into a campaign button by his supporters... But as far as the center of the population were concerned in 1964, that made him sound like a crazy person. And it helped to seal his defeat. But he had a point. Substitute Christianity or whatever other religion or ideology you might choose to for the word liberty in that sentence. And sooner or later you will find a formulation that you can agree with. Religion is inevitably in some ways extreme because of the absolute claims that it makes. And what I want to do in these lectures is to look at some examples of such extreme movements and to look at how they've emerged, how they've flourished, and then either settled down or died out. And so today we're going to look at what was at its first founding and reliably still is one of the world's most surprising countries, the United States of America. In 1776, it had the nerve to declare independence and union for a continent-sized wilderness with scarcely 2.5 million people who were a kaleidoscope of languages and nationalities and beliefs. And amazingly, as this new republic's population rose tenfold during its first three quarters of a century, this phantasm of a country not only held together, but became the richest society that had ever existed on the earth up to that point. And it also, during that first lifetime of its existence, took the word democracy, which for centuries had been a boo word to all thinking people, and had transformed it into a virtue. In 1828, Andrew Johnson, who would later himself go on to become president, explained what he thought that meant. The voice of the people, he said, is the voice of God. The Democratic Party has undertaken the political redemption of man. And sooner or later, the great work will be accomplished. And he looked forward to a time not far off when the millennial morning has dawned and the lion and the lamb shall lie down together. So America's democratic adventure went hand-in-hand with its religious adventure. The United States in the early to mid-19th century saw one of history's great bursts of religious creativity. This wasn't the obvious direction in which you might have expected the new republic to go. The United States' founding fathers were predominantly Enlightenment skeptics and deists, and the East Coast cities were nurseries of rationalism and scepticism. But as we have been regularly reminded, America is not defined either by its elites or by its coastal cities. The newly enfranchised mass population was going in a different direction. Post-revolutionary America saw a revolt against educated elites. Self-taught men and women who had had enough of experts asserted themselves against the self-satisfied and self-serving priesthoods of knowledge, whether that was in law, in medicine, or in theology. The revolutionary spirit distrusted learned hierarchies and valued simplicity over subtlety. It was an authentically revolutionary view, also an authentically Protestant one. The attitude of believers who know that they must stand before God without a priest to hold their hands, and who are confident that they can. And as America's population surged westwards, this is the religious spirit in which it did so. Much of the population had no formal church membership. For such an explicitly religious society, formal church membership in America has always been surprisingly low. People managed their own religion. The printed page brought Christian community to scattered populations in the way that radio and then television and then the internet would in the future. By By 1830, the United States had some 600 regular religious magazines and newspapers. And the old denominations were struggling to keep up with the freelance itinerant preachers. This was a free market in which revivalist preachers who could gather the greatest harvest were the ones who succeeded. Frontier preachers often disowned any denominational affiliation, claiming simply to be Christians. Elias Smith, who was a self-taught Yankee preacher, insisted that a properly Republican church would have to be democratic. It would have to respect every believer's conscience. The Bible would be interpreted by believers' common sense rather than theologians with their self-serving obscurantism he lamented that many Americans were only half-free, despite their revolution, being, he said, in matters of religion still bound to catechism, creed, covenant, or superstitious priest. When he founded his newspaper in 1808, he chose for the title The Herald of Gospel Liberty. Now, there are lots of extraordinary religious stories that began in this ferment. The best known is that of Mormonism, but Today, I want to look at a different story that's not so well remembered, but more characteristic of its time, and I hope I can persuade you more significant for the world today. And it's a story which begins with maybe the most archetypal religious figure of the early United States. This is the way William Miller was painted by his successors, but I think you get a better sense of the the man... ...from the sketch of him that was done by a reporter for the New York Post. Born in 1782, so in the midst of the Revolution... ...raised in Massachusetts in poverty, in a Baptist church... ...with meagre education, but he, he was literate. In 1803, at the age of 21, he moved west to Vermont... ...and there he discovered a public library. And he gave himself an eager crash course in the radical thinkers of the age, scathing Enlightenment polemics against the Bible. And this produced a kind of conversion, and he became a deist, a sceptic about God's power in the world, very much in keeping with the spirit of the New Republic. But then the New Republic needed more than philosophy. Miller went to fight for his country in the War of 1812, and he took part in the bloody Battle of Plattsburgh in September of 1814. It was a life-changing experience for him. The Americans were outnumbered three to one, but snatched a victory. And Miller could only see this as the work of a mightier power than man. But it was as much the slaughter as the victory that moved him. How grand he wrote, how noble, and yet how awful. He found that his trite-deist optimism seemed inadequate to a world which was capable of such glory and such horror. After a drawn-out crisis, he experienced a dramatic conversion to a, a pretty orthodox, stern Calvinism that could explain what milk-and-water deism couldn't. In a dark world, he said, I saw Jesus as a friend and my only help." So far, so conventional. But how was he to reconcile this new conviction with his long-standing doubts about the Bible? It's no use asking a minister to set his worries at rest. He has all his age's prejudices against learned authority. No one can tell him what to think. He has to solve the problem for himself. And so he set out to, as he put it, harmonise all those apparent contradictions in the Bible to my own satisfaction, or I will be a deist still. Hard work, common sense, simple faith are the tools that he's, he's deploying on this task. And it worked, but with a startling side effect. Miller succeeded in quieting his doubts, but he also made a surprising discovery. Like many Bible readers before him, he was drawn, like a moth, to the complicated apocalyptic symbolism of the books of Daniel and of Revelation which seemed to lay out a tantalizing map of human history. We don't know how much he knew about the traditions of interpretation behind these books. He certainly did pick up on the idea, which goes back at least to the 12th century, that when the apocalyptic text talks about a day, a day actually stands for a year. What Miller brought to the problem was ingenuity and an eye for detail, and a a modern, almost a scientific conviction that God's plan for the world is both comprehensible and susceptible to numerical analysis. The pieces of the puzzle slowly fell into place as he worked on it over the course of several years. After many false leads and blind alleys, he eventually found several different calculations which led independently to the same conclusion. The most important of these... Was based around Daniel 8, verse 14, which promises, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, if days means years, if the cleansing of the sanctuary means Christ returns to earth in glory, and if, as other verses can be taken to imply, that 2,300 year period began with the order to rebuild Jerusalem in 457 BC then simple addition showed that Christ would return in glory in the year 1843. That does sometimes make people chuckle. But Miller was no fool. The date didn't just rest on this one calculation. There were were a series of them. This is the most important. All of them can be made to point to 1843. It's bold, but it's not self-evidently crazy. Skeptics pointed out to him that Christ had said of that day and that hour knoweth no man. And Miller readily agreed. He wasn't predicting a day or an hour, just a year. (laughs) The idea that this world, so full of exciting, terrifying novelties. This is a period which feels itself to be changing at a white-knuckle rate. The idea that it's hurtling towards its end seems almost self-evidently true. For millennia before this, excitable prophets have been quenched with the world-weary biblical principle that there is no new thing under the sun. But in the early 19th century, that's plainly no longer the case. A careful scientific analysis which which both explains what the helter-skelter of recent history meant and foretold its imminent end was very plausible. Miller took a long time to convince himself that he was right, Even then he was slow to act, he had no wish to become a travelling preacher, his health was fragile, but the years were running short. Finally in 1831 he began to preach his message around New England. His hope was simply to visit churches of all denominations, persuade them that the moment for repentance was now, and he was genuinely surprised when he was mocked as a fanatic. He thought that his calculations, once he'd explained them, would be self-evidently correct, and so he kept at it. The crucial moment was the conversion in 1839 of this man, Joshua Himes, who was a preacher and an able publicist. Having been convinced by Miller's message, Himes was alarmed that the way Miller was going about it was amateurish. The hour is becoming late. The whole thing is kept in a corner yet, he protested. No time should be lost in giving the church and the whole world warning in thunder tones. Heims and Miller formed a formidable partnership. Heims's first move, of course, was to start a newspaper, which he called Signs of the Times. It was the first of many. There are around four million copies of Millerite, publications which appeared over the next four years many of them illustrated with vivid symbols i mean this is is using the symbolism of the books of daniel and revelation but you can see the calculations threading their way through it as well leading everything down to 1843 at the bottom if for the 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 simpler approach you, you can't avoid the message with that one um, Himes secures speaking engagements, he raises funds, he distributes pamphlets. In 1842, he had this meeting tent made, which is supposed to have been America's largest ever tent. It's seated over 4,000 um, and was apparently the inspiration for P.T. Barnum's travelling circus. Uh, it became a kind of symbol for the movement, a sort of colossal circus church, which was both grand and also by its nature, temporary. And now they start to win converts. The message wins tens of thousands. And inevitably it changes in the process. Miller had initially just wanted to fire up believers in their home churches. But what happens to converts whose ministers ridicule the message? laymen and women whose churches won't let them preach, but who are too fired with the urgency of the message to stay silent. What about people who don't have a home church? Secular folks who are converted. Um, As the the movement grows, it begins to turn into a sect of its own to produce its own hymn books, for example, and it also begins to make enemies. Meetings are disrupted, tents are pulled down, greased pigs were let loose in the crowds. Vandalism may have been what caused the giant tents collapse in a storm in, in 1843. And so those who are burning with advent hope, gathering together under persecution, begin... to to, to meet for worship with one another rather than sharing their pews with their sceptics. Now, Miller's vagueness about the date, no day or hour, is becoming unsustainable. Under pressure, he reluctantly declares that the end will likely come between the 21st of March 1843 and the same date the following year. When the 22nd of March 1844 dawned, however... Miller was philosophical. He said, we have no right to be dogmatical. We should consider how fallible we are. But if he could live that way, a movement which was built to work towards a crescendo couldn't. That summer of 1844, a previously previously obscure preacher in the movement named Samuel Snow declared that he had found the glitch in Miller's reckoning and that the actual date of Christ's return would be the Hebrew Day of Atonement, the 22nd of October, 1844 if you read the memoirs of that summer, what comes out of them is a calm and solemn joyfulness. Believers put their affairs in order, giving what they could towards publicity for the cause, some of them guiltily holding on to something in reserve, others offering everything they had. One Millerite, looking back a quarter century later, wrote, not for all the world would I have missed going through my Advent experience, nor for all the world would I want to go through it again. (laughs) There were visions, there were prophecies. One meeting was visited by strangers who came to gawp at the fanatics. But instead, hearing their hosts singing, the spirit of the meeting caught them. They tried to slip away quietly back to everyday life. But, as the witness wrote, one man and his wife succeeded in getting out of the doors. But the third one fell upon the threshold. The fourth, the fifth, and so on, till most of the company were thus slain by the power of God. That is, they fainted. Some thirteen or more were converted before the meeting closed even the two who'd managed to leave came back the following night and they were converted or so the story went it was a season of miracles Himes and Miller were both rather wary of the 22nd October prophecy they weren't convinced by the reasoning behind it but they were won round in the end by the fruit that the message was bearing in believers lives The prophecies of 1843, Himes admitted, never made so great and good an impression as this has done upon all that have come under its influence. I dare not oppose it. On on the 16th of October, 1844, six days before the deadline, the issue of Himes's weekly newspaper, the Advent Herald, confidently declared, we shall make no provision for issuing a paper for the week following. (laughs) Miller couldn't quite bring himself to endorse Snow. But he conceded that I see a glory in the October date which I never saw before and admitted that if the Lord doesn't come in the next three weeks I will be twice as disappointed as I was in the spring. The stories that are told about the 22nd of October white ascension robes and crowds gathered on rooftops and hilltops mostly seemed to be malicious inventions although they lived on in american storytelling well into the 20th century this is a, a much later cartoon um, one believer who supposedly died leaping from a treetop into god's arms wrote indignantly to his local paper to deny it uh, but the crushing emptiness of what became known as the Great Disappointment couldn't be denied. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. We wept and wept till the day dawn, one recalled. The ribald mockery of neighbours and families who were no doubt a little relieved to have won their bet on scepticism could hardly help. Some Millerites now threw over the whole movement as phony. The doctrine that Christ's sudden return might end the world at any moment has never fully recovered from this scandal. Christ hadn't come, so perhaps he wasn't going to come. The biblical calculations had proved fruitless, and so evidently the Bible shouldn't be read that way. Maybe it shouldn't be read at all. But what about the people whose lives had been changed by their experience that summer? What if, as Himes wrote in November 1844, you were compelled to admit that God has wrought a great, a glorious work in the hearts of his children, and it will not be in vain? Well, the simplest and the hardest road was the one which Miller and Himes themselves took. They admitted that their predictions had been wrong. There were those who went back to their Bibles for another try, but Miller warned against any attempt to do further date-setting. He said that God had taught them a bitter lesson and that they must learn it. Himes, in particular, emerges from this period with some honour. Um, he faced a slew of accusations after the disappointment of, of, of property speculation, robbery, murders of arrest or suicide, and he patiently and successfully defended both his own and the movement's honesty. He organised relief funds for those who had abandoned jobs or homes or who had left crops unharvested. Further editions of the Advent Herald and his other publications did eventually appear after something of a hiccup, and slowly, unwillingly, this community of Adventists became just another denomination. A family of conservative Protestant churches distinguished by preaching Christ's second coming with a little more urgency than most others. Adventism became an identity, and it was based above all on a shared memory of one extraordinary year. Miller ministered to this strange community until he died in 1849. Hines did so until 1876, when he finally returned to the Episcopalian Church of his youth. He was ordained an Episcopal priest in 1878 and served a parish in South Dakota for 16 years. He died in 1895 at the age of 90, still faithful and expectant. But that's not the end of the story. Some Millerites couldn't accept that subsiding into churchly respectability was an adequate response to the glory that they'd seen and to the bitterness that they'd endured. There were bewildered groups immediately after October forty-four who tried to summon Christ by sheer force of will, forming prayer communes until they were worn down by exhaustion and disillusion. One group decided that the world had now entered its Sabbath rest and that therefore none of them should do any work um, this was conceived, notion was conceived by the men in the community. Um, and they, they rebuked the women amongst them for Sabbath-breaking and then backtracked very rapidly when food stopped appearing on their plates. Several ex-Millerites formed more enduring communes, including one near Jerusalem, which endured until the mid-1850s. A number of them joined one of the best-established sectarian communities that was already present in America, The Shakers who had been founded in the late 18th century by an English prophetess and who were committed both to absolute equality of the sexes and also to strict celibacy. The appeal of the Shakers was that they taught that Christ's return was a gradual process, a slow dawning, in which their perfect communities of disinterested love were the first glimmers and which would, as they lived out this new world, insensibly brighten into a full day. Millerites, who were reeling from the disappointment, found themselves ridiculed and despised by most American Christians, but the Shakers met them with sympathy and with understanding. They encouraged Millerites to press on in their convictions, not to backtrack. Above all, what Shakerism provided was an answer to the great Adventist problem after 1844, which is what should you do other than simply wait? Do you not, one Adventist turned Shaker urged his former brethren, do you not want to find a place where Advent work takes the place of Advent talk? These communities were working for Christ's second appearance and the settled holiness of their lives was a standing rebuke to the fretted consciences of disappointed believers. But even many of those who were drawn to shakerism found that they weren't pure enough for this particularly austere vision of heaven. Lifelong celibacy may have an appeal in the first rush of a religious conversion or as a line to which your conscience can, can hold where it feels it's drowning in sin. But as the dawning of the new kingdom remained imperceptibly slow, the cost of this rose. The adventist turned shaker I quoted a few minutes ago eventually left the community, reportedly saying that he would rather go to hell with his wife than live among the shakers without her. And the Shakers continued slowly withering away. I believe there are now two left. Instead, two other groups emerged from Millerism and found ways of enduring as communities, which were faithful both to the movement's first spirit and to its new circumstances. And these two groups could hardly be more different from each other. Yet there are certain similarities between them, and I want to spend the rest of this lecture looking at these two in turn. The first of them was grounded on one believer's sudden insight on the bleak morning of the 23rd of October, 1844. Hiram Edson had kept watch all night, and he now stared as he felt into the abyss. I mused in my own heart, saying my Advent experience had been the richest and brightest of all my Christian experience. If this has proved a failure, what was the rest worth? Has the Bible proved a failure? Is there no God, no heaven, no golden home city, no paradise? Is this all but a cunningly devised fable? But instead, as he prayed with renewed urgency that morning, he was given an explanation in a vision. Miller's calculation, you will remember, had foretold when the sanctuary would be cleansed. What Edson now understood was that that didn't actually refer to Christ's return to earth. The date had been right. Christ had entered the heavenly sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, in final preparation for the last judgment. So the world might look the same, but while the Millerites had wept and prayed the night before, it had moved a decisive step closer to its end. Very satisfying solution. It allows the Adventists to affirm the message that they'd first believed while also explaining its apparent failure. And Edson rushes it into print. And it's taken up, above all, by a 17-year-old Millerite from Maine named Ellen Harmon. In December of 1844, she has... So, again, just a month or two after the, the, the disappointment, she had a vision in which she sees Adventists walking on a narrow way towards the new Jerusalem, their eyes fixed on Christ. Some, however, now rashly denied the light behind them, as she said, and said that it was not God that had led them out so far, and those poor fools stumbled and fell off the path into darkness. It was those who embraced Edson's sanctuary doctrine who remained on the straight and narrow. But Harmon added two further wrinkles to this. One of them was what she called the shut door, which meant that during what was presumably a brief interlude between Christ's entry into the sanctuary and his final return, the door was shut on fresh conversions. The world had had its chance before the 22nd of October. And that meant that Harmon's efforts were focused exclusively on the scattered Adventist community, those who'd already been persuaded of Miller's message. The other addition that she makes comes in a vision in which Jesus showed her the original tablets of the Ten Commandments, And one of the ten was encircled by a halo. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. She understood this to mean that she ought to abandon the Christian tradition of worship on a Sunday, a tradition which is very ancient but isn't actually taught in the Bible, and she should return instead to the biblical Sabbath on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. That's a very disruptive challenge to social norms, and Harmon's little band, who badly needed to distinguish themselves sharply from a sinful world, embraced it, gratefully, partly, I think, for that reason. Maybe this was the last step in their purification before the sanctuary was cleansed. The Joshua Hines to Ellen Harmon's Miller was a young preacher named James White, who in rapid succession became her chaperone, her publisher, and her husband. They were a formidable team not least in turning a movement with initially a very short-term outlook into one which was capable of functioning indefinitely. By 1851, that shut-door doctrine was becoming a problem because new converts weren't only being won but were being born. Uh, A rigidly consistent movement might well have withered at that stage, but the whites recognised the new situation and they quietly dropped the doctrine. They also disowned any further attempt at date-setting. It's a key early decision. Ellen was told in a vision that the reason Christ had entered his sanctuary in 1844 was to conduct his investigative judgment, that is, working steadily through the record of humanity's sins in advance of the end. By its nature, that might take a while. Rather than playing guessing games with a calendar, they should use this providential delay in order to make themselves a truly holy people. In 1860... Reluctantly, this community organized itself into a formal denomination. And the name that they chose for themselves, the Seventh-day Adventists, encapsulated their distinct double focus. They're Adventists, their eyes remain fixed on Christ's imminent return, but in the meantime, they urgently pursue personal and corporate, corporate holiness. And the Saturday Sabbath is only the most prominent symbol of that. And indeed, in the 1860s, their quest for holiness takes on a a new direction, which is of profound importance for, for the church. Ellen White had long suffered from poor health, and like many other American Protestants, she distrusted the learned priests of medicine as well as those of theology. Many Adventists expected miracles of healing in these latter days, and there were some who toyed with rejecting human medicine altogether. But but White's too level-headed for that. She accepts that God works through human medicine, but she does not mean the medicine practiced by learned and expensive MDs. That was you know, not merely socially exclusive and still in the mid-19th century cruelly ineffective. It also offended her notions of purity and simplicity and natural perfection. So this is Republican suspicion of learned elites in another form. The quest for health as spiritual purity. It's a very widespread theme in 19th-century America, and she picks it up with verve. Uh, uh, Obviously, naturally, she denounces alcohol, Um, but she goes goes far beyond that. She urges Seventh-day Adventists to abstain from the filthy weed tobacco. She disapproves of tea and coffee, dangerous stimulants which foster a tendency to gossip. Um, Um. Abstaining from pork becomes an invariable rule, the the, 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 um, Jewish law being picked up on there. She herself eventually abandons all meat and for a time also eggs, cheese and cream, although unlike some of her disciples she continues to permit milk, sugar and salt. But diet's only the beginning. She's also a convert to hydrotherapy. This was a, a medical technique which consisted chiefly of wrapping yourself in soaking bandages and in drinking copious quantities of pure water. Um, She credited this harmless technique with saving two of her sons from a dangerous illness in 1863 and a vision after that leads her to declare the merits of God's great medicine, water, pure soft water for diseases, for health, for cleanliness and for luxury. She also had firm views on sexual health, such as the dangers of excessively frequent sex. Um, She's a mother of teenage sons and produces this pamphlet, The uh, uh, Appeal Against the Great Cause of Physical, Mental and Moral Ruin in Many of the Children of Our Time. It's her first pamphlet on health matters against masturbation, which she blames for imbecility, dwarfed limbs, crippled, uh, crippled forms, misshapen heads and deformity of every description. She also had strong views on dress. Her recommendation of a a short skirt, that is calf length for women, with loose-fitting trousers underneath it, was as scandalous in her age as public nudity would be in ours. Health reform becomes a central means not just of purifying Seventh-day Adventist believers, but of adding to their number. The church begins to publish journals like The Health Reformer, which are aimed at a general reader and to establish sanatoriums and spas where patients could gently be introduced into the sect. One result of this was the long and fruitful, although eventually unhappy, partnership between Ellen White and John Harvey Kellogg, nutritionist, health reformer, and the inventor of cornflakes. White didn't particularly like cornflakes, um, and she turned down in the end the opportunity for the Seventh-day Adventist church to own the Kellogg's brand. Which was a costly but maybe a fortunate decision. Uh, having kept her soul's church pure throughout her long life, she finally dies in 1915. I think it would have been a shame to have sold its soul for breakfast cereal. <laughs> and I think that near miss is a sign of, of one of the most remarkable facts about Seventh day Advertisement, which is its astonishing gift for avoiding trouble. I, and I think a lot of that has to be put down f- to, to her legacy of pragmatism. It's escaped vanishing into extremism, but maintained a distinctive identity. And so it's moved on from its early apocalyptic views that the United States is one of the anti-Christian beasts described in the book of Revelation towards now a more sort of constructive and pragmatic apoliticism. It's never allowed its apocalyptic hopes to tip itself into madness, although some splinter groups, most notoriously the branch Davidians who were immolated in Texas in 1993, who came out of a Seventh-day Adventist milieu, they show how easily it could have happened. Nor does Adventist health reform take the blind alley taken by White's near-contemporary Mary Baker Eddy, whose superficially similar Christian scientist movement becomes trapped in a, a ghetto by her occultish preoccupations and her rejection of medicine. The Adventists, by contrast, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists are able quietly to abandon a, a, you know, sort of medical quackery and fully embrace mainstream biomedicine in the early 20th century. One thing has remained constant about that church, which is its growth. The Seventh-day Adventist church has grown from some 200 members in 1850 to 3,500 in 1860, to 75,000 worldwide by 1900, to by dint of steadily doubling in size at least every 15 years to some 18 million globally at present. Without attracting very much attention, they've come to outnumber much more prominent groups like the Mormons and have quietly mushroomed into one of the world's major Protestant denominations. They've also moved closer to the Protestant mainstream. They can sometimes seem simply like conservative Protestants who happen to worship on Saturdays. They're carefully apolitical. They are exceptionally multiracial. But even so, they still stand apart. It is in practice impossible to be a Seventh-day Adventist in good standing unless you accept Ellen White's vision. And Adventist historians who've delved too deeply into her career have found themselves ostracized. So... The Seventh-day Adventists have made peace with the world, but they haven't surrendered to it. The second modern group to emerge out of Millerism could hardly be more different. They're latecomers. Charles Taze Russell, this movement's founder, was only born in 1852 in Pittsburgh. As a teenager, he converted to the the, the mainstream post-1844 Adventist tradition, Miller and Himes' tradition. And Naturally, the young Russell turned to a self-taught study of biblical chronology, hoping, as many others had done, to find the flaw in Miller's calculations. And by 1876, he had an ingenious solution. One of Miller's supporting arguments for his 1843 date, not the the principal one, but it's it's there in the mix, had been a tenuous calculation that there would be an interval of 2,520 years following Israel's enemies reigning over her. Miller had counted this from the year 677 BC, when the first exiles were deported from Jerusalem, which brought him neatly to 1843. Russell argued that that was a peculiar start date. A much more natural one would be the actual fall of Jerusalem in 606 BC, which pointed to a new crux year, 1914. Helpfully still in the future. Now, Russell's hardly the first one to come up with a new date. What set him apart was a separate series of... I don't want to get too much into the weeds with this, but bear with me. A separate series of calculations based on the ancient Jewish years of Jubilee, which led him to conclude that Christ's rule on Earth would begin not in 1914, but 40 years earlier in 1874, a date which had just passed without obvious cosmic incident. But... That fact, which you might have thought would torpedo Russell's theory, in fact becomes central to it. He preached not Christ's second coming, but what he called his second presence on earth, a slow process which had already begun. There would be this 40-year period between 1874 and 1914 in which Christ would slowly harvest the souls of his faithful, eventually making up the prophetic number of 144,000. Now, like most sect founders, the last thing Russell wanted to do was to found a sect. His ambitions were bigger. His disciples were known with studied humility as the Bible students. Their findings were for everybody. They shouldn't be confined behind denominational walls. And they would keep that anonymous title until they adopted the modern term, Jehovah's Witnesses in 1931. And that too was meant to be a plain description, people who bear witness to the God whose name is Jehovah. What Russell founded was not a church, but a publishing enterprise. He began with a self-published book in 1877, and in 1884 established the Zion's Watchtower and Tract Society as a legal corporation, the very American way of forming a sect. As a corporation, the society, which was renamed the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in 1896, has unchallenged legal rights over its own publications, and it has a simple autocratic structure. As a result, under Russell and his successors as president, the Witnesses have become both the world's most rigidly controlled large-scale Christian movement and also by far the most persecuted Christian movement of modern times. Russell's understanding of that window of opportunity before 1914 gave his Bible students their ethos. Their priority wasn't to win fresh converts to Christianity, but to call nominal Christians out of their false Babylonical churches while there was still time. And so a central concern became to distinguish his movement from those false churches. And a large part of the, of the witness's identity has come to be about finding lines that can be drawn of that sort. And so, like other anti-sectarian sectarians before him, Russell rejects the Trinity, which he calls the unreasonable theory that Jehovah is his own son and our Lord Jesus is his own father. And that gives his own movement and the mainstream churches an enduring pretext for loathing each other. Hence, too, the way he self-consciously uses the word Jehovah, which is simply the Latin form of the Hebrew name of God. But for Russell, it becomes a way of asserting both that Jesus, who has a different name, is a God rather than actually God, and also a marker of his movement's difference from the other churches. But it's the need to fill up the numbers of the faithful which gives Russell's Bible students their single-minded priority they lived to bear witness to the truth regardless of whether they were believed after all if there are only going to be 144,000 chosen most of humanity is obviously going to spurn the message the legions of witness publishers as they call them who work door to door and in public places across the world do so did then and do so still in deadly earnest after careful training in managing difficult encounters and in turning conversations so as to have a chance to save another soul. But they neither expect a high rate of success nor regard rejection as failure and indeed find camaraderie in shared tales of rebuffs at the doorstep. Their responsibility is to bear witness faithfully regardless of whether or not that witness is heard. Later witnesses told of how Russell himself as a young man would go out at night to chalk up Bible texts in conspicuous places so that workingmen passing by might be warned and be saved from the torments of hell. In the 1920s, American witnesses would sometimes descend on quiet residential neighbourhoods with loudspeakers so that shut doors could be no barrier to the word. This is proclamation whose primary purpose is the act of proclamation. And that also provided the answer to Millerism's unanswered question. How should you live in the shadow of Armageddon? Seventh-day Adventists reached for for purity, which is why health reform becomes so important for them. Russell's movement finds a different kind of purity. Behind the, the ceaseless activity of preaching is the austere, the almost monastic holiness of scrupulous separation from the world. Nations, churches, families, all of these are shortly to be judged And destroyed. Therefore, true students of the Bible should renounce them all. Russell's community aren't going to openly defy governments, but nor will they collaborate with them through, for example, military service or even through voting. Instead, they will bear their witness by rigid refusal to conform to any of this world's norms. But, of course, there's a problem, which is the pre printed expiry date of 1914. As the year grew closer, Russell began to try to backpedal and hedge, but his earlier predictions have been very specific. If he'd lived longer, then I think the movement might well have disintegrated. Instead, following his death in October 1916, the Society's presidency was seized in a boardroom coup by Joseph Franklin Rutherford, uh, who was a a lawyer of no great distinction and was was always known as judge. Um, And he really stands as the movement's second founder dubiously claiming russell's authority he now argued that 1914 like 1874 before it was wasn't an event but the beginning of a process and what makes this possible is that while the world had not actually ended in 1914 that year did indeed bring a global catastrophe catastrophe of biblical proportions in which the world's corrupt nations set about each other's destruction it wasn't ridiculous to conclude that russell had been at least partly right and that the final end was near In early 1918, Russell toured the United States delivering a speech later published titled The World Has Ended! Millions Now Living Will Never Die. It was a time for Jehovah's Witnesses to separate themselves from the world's death throes. As the United States entered the Great War in 1917, Russell vehemently denounced both the war itself and its cheerleaders in the mainstream churches. As a result of this, he and seven of the society's other directors were arrested, found guilty of sedition, and given lengthy prison sentences. They were released in 1919, when it became distasteful to imprison Americans for their political views again. But by then, the war had ended, and the world had not. Rutherford tried to revive the society with a further prediction that the final end would come in 1925, And when that prophecy failed, without even a near-apocalyptic global event as consolation, the movement reached its lowest ebb. And so Rutherford reinvented it. Along with the new name, Jehovah's Witnesses, in 1931, went central control of the appointment of elders in local congregations. Teaching offered in these congregations would now be uniform across the globe. Russell's original works, many of which were now embarrassingly obsolete, were allowed to go out of print for good, but of course the society held the copyright, so nobody else could publish them. Publications began to appear anonymously as the collective unchallengeable wisdom of the Watchtower Society, which in 1927 declared itself to be God's faithful and discreet slave with the authority to determine questions of faith. Its new books typically had sweeping one-word titles, Life, Riches, Vindication. The Witnesses' apocalypticism was undimmed, but there has been no further authoritative date setting since then. There have been excitements amongst Witnesses about certain other dates, particularly 1975, but nothing official. For most of the 20th century, the Society simply held tight to 1914, Declaring week by week in its main magazine that the new world would dawn before the generation that saw the events of 1914 will pass away. In 1995, this increasingly implausible claim was redefined, explaining that generation was a spiritual rather than a literal term. Now, we might have thought that this would be embarrassing. But the witnesses have continued to grow. And at present, number around about 8 million active members worldwide. The numbers are contested. The driver of their growth appears not to be the fading apocalyptic predictions, but the continued insistence on aggressively distancing themselves from social and religious norms. This is the logic which underlies what otherwise looked like a collection of rather peculiar stances, such as the insistence that Jesus Christ was killed on a stake rather than on anything so popish as a cross. Or the insistence which was introduced in 1945, so relatively late, and then on rather shaky grounds, that witnesses may not receive blood transfusions. What these and other policies do is to assert a highly visible difference with the outside world. And for this, they have been duly reviled by churches and especially by governments. Most notoriously, Nazi Germany murdered over 5,000 of them, a large percentage of the German total at the time. Even though uniquely amongst the Nazi's victims, they were given a chance to save themselves by renouncing their faith. At exactly the same time, witnesses in America and in the British Empire were being imprisoned for conscientious objection and were being accused of being Nazi sympathisers. Since 1945, it's been communist states of various kinds and And and, and one-party states in the developing world which have been the most active persecutors it is not easy for outsiders to love the witnesses Um, it is I think impossible not to be moved by the stoicism with which they've endured persecution but enduring and even courting persecution is a part of their identity there is a large constituency of ex-witnesses who have little good to say about the society but I do think there's more to them than the hostile caricature admits. Their determined internationalism and disregard for racial differences has made them at present amongst America's most racially integrated religious groups. They're also capable of winning real respect from their neighbours, especially in tough social environments. When other churches have reputations for clericalism or hypocrisy or financial corruption, the Witnesses can justly boast that they have no paid ministry, they take no collections, and they maintain strict moral discipline. The rigorous training which all Witness publishers undertake uh, from detailed, although carefully directed, study of texts through to sharing in leadership can evidently be as rewarding as it's demanding. I don't think outsiders need to admire or to agree with the society, but I do think that they should perhaps try not to hate it, if only because hatred is one of the fuels on which it thrives. Neither witnesses nor mainstream Protestants like to admit it, but they do belong to the same extended family. And there are some hints that, like the Seventh-day Adventists, the witnesses are subject to the gravitational pull of social normalization. In 1996, the society gave permission for witnesses facing military conscription in in their home countries to perform civilian service in Lyon, which had previously been banned. The growing numbers of passive witnesses, the ones who aren't active publishers but who remain members of the community, represent a bridge with the outside world of a kind that the society has generally striven to, 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 to stop from developing. And there's plenty of evidence that such believers often hold much more tolerant and inclusive views than they are supposed to. William Miller didn't know where he was starting. Um, and his story is a long way from over. But by way of an interim report, I think we can say this much. His movement was grounded in a theological, biblical argument. But what really gave it its energy was Experience a shared moment of inner renewal as his people lived in the shadow of Advent in 1844, an experience which even convinced Miller himself against his better judgment. And it's thanks to that experience that it didn't simply flare and disappear, because even when it became unavoidable that his predictions weren't literally true, too many people had found a deeper truth in them, that they were unwilling to let go. Religious communities can live off little more than the memory of grace for a long, long time. But even so, this should have been a mere echo, a slow fading into the background, and it would have been if two of the strands of that echo hadn't stumbled across radically different ways of giving themselves enduring institutional expression. Both of them, the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses, found answers to the question not only of what people ought to believe, but of how they ought to live, and answers which proved satisfying in the short term and viable in the long term to enough people that they've been able to thrive and to spread. So that, in case you're looking to found one, appears to be the recipe for a successful sect. What neither the Adventists nor apparently even the Witnesses have managed to do is to find a foolproof way of stopping themselves decaying or mutating or developing into what every extremist movement most fears becoming just another church thank you for more information please go to www.gresham.ac.uk